1: Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading Book 1, The Coming of the Martians, chapters 8 to 10, from The War of the Worlds, by H.G. Wells. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 Friday Night The most extraordinary thing to my mind of all the
0: strange and wonderful things that happened upon that Friday was the dovetailing of the commonplace habits of our social order with the first beginnings of the series of events that was to topple that social order headlong. If on Friday night you had taken a pair of compasses, and drawn a circle with a radius of five miles round the Woking Sand Pits. I doubt if you would have had one human being outside of it, unless it were some relation of stent, or of the three or four cyclists or London people lying dead on the common whose emotions or habits were at all affected by the newcomers. Many people had heard of the cylinder, of course, and talked about it in their leisure, but it certainly didn't make the sensation that an ultimatum to Germany would have done. In London that night, Poor Henderson's telegram describing the gradual unscrewing of the shot was judged to be canard, and his evening paper, after wiring for authentication from him and receiving no reply, the man was killed, decided not to print a special edition. Even within the five-mile circle, the great majority of people were inert. I have already described the behaviour of the men and women to whom I spoke. All over the district, people were dining and supping. Working men were gardening after the labours of the day. Children were being put to bed. Young people were wandering through the lanes love-making. Students sat over their books. Maybe there was a murmur in the village streets, a novel and dominant topic in the public houses, and here and there a messenger or even an eyewitness of the latter occurrences, caused a whirl of excitement, a shouting, and a running to and fro. But for the most part the daily routine of working, eating, drinking, sleeping, went on as it had done for countless years as though no planet Mars existed in the sky. Even at Woking Station and Horsall and Chobham, that was the case. In Woking Junction, until a late hour, trains were stopping and going on. Others were shunting on the sidings. Passengers were alighting and waiting, and everything was proceeding in the most ordinary way. A boy from the town, trenching on Smith's Monopoly, was selling papers with the afternoon's news. The ringing impact of trucks, the sharp whistle of the engines from the junction mingled with their shouts of men from Mars. Excited men came into the station about nine o'clock with incredible tidings and caused no more disturbance than drunkards might have done. People rattling Londonwards peered into the darkness outside the carriage windows and saw only a rare flickering vanishing spark dance up from the direction of horsel a red glow and a thin veil of smoke driving across the stars and thought that nothing more serious than a heath fire was happening It was only round the edge of the common that any disturbance was perceptible. There were half a dozen villas burning on the woking border. There were lights in all the houses on the common side of the three villages, and the people there kept awake till dawn. A curious crowd lingered relentlessly, people coming up and going but the crowd remaining, both on the Chobham and Horsall bridges. One or two adventurous souls, it was afterwards found, went into the darkness and crawled quiet near the Martians but they never returned. For now and again a light ray, like the beam of a warship's searchlight, swept the common, and the heat ray was ready to follow. Save for such, that big area of common was silent and desolate, and the charred bodies lay about on it all night under the stars and all the next day a noise of hammering from the pit was heard by many people so you have the state of things on Friday night in the centre sticking into the skin of our old planet Earth like a poisoned dart was this cylinder but the poison was scarcely working yet. Around it was a patch of silent common, smouldering in places, and with a few dark, dimly seen objects lying in the contorted attitudes here and there. Here and there was a burning bush or tree, Beyond was a fringe of excitement, and farther than that fringe the inflammation had not crept as yet. In the rest of the world, the stream of life still flowed as it had flowed for immemorial years. The fever of war that would presently clog vein and artery, deaden nerve and destroy brain, had still to develop. All night long the Martians were hammering and stirring, sleepless, indefatigable, at work upon the machines they were making ready, and ever and again a puff of greenish-white smoke whirled up to the starlit sky. About eleven, a company of soldiers came through Horsall and deployed along the edge of the common to form a cordon. Later a second company marched through Chobham to display on the north side of the common. Several officers from the Inkerman barracks had been on the common earlier in the day and one, Major Eden, was reported to be missing. The colonel of the regiment came to Chobham Bridge and was busy questioning the crowd at midnight. The military authorities were certainly alive to the seriousness of the business. About eleven... The next morning's paper were able to say a squadron of hearses, two maxims, and about four hundred men of the Cardigan regiment started from Aldershot. A few seconds after midnight, the crowd in the Chertsey Road, woking, saw a star fall from heaven. Into the pine woods to the northwest. It had a greenish colour and caused a silent brightness like the summer lightning.
1: This was the second cylinder. Chapter 9 The Fighting Begins. Saturday
0: lives in my memory as a day of suspense. It was a day of lassitude too, hot and close, with, I am told, a rapidly fluctuating barometer. I had slept but little, though my wife had succeeded in sleeping, and I rose early. I went into my garden before breakfast and stood listening, but towards the common there was nothing stirring but a lark. The milkman came as usual. I heard the rattle of his chariot, and I went round to the side gate to ask the latest news. He told me that during the night. The Martians had been surrounded by the troops, and that guns were expected. Then, a familiar, reassuring tone, I heard a train running towards Woking. They aren't to be killed, said the milkman, if that can possibly be avoided. I saw my neighbour gardening chatted with him for a time, and then strolled in to breakfast. It was a most unexceptional morning. My neighbour was of the opinion that the troops would be able to capture or destroy the Martians during the day. It's a pity they make themselves so unapproachable, he said. It would be curious to know how they live on another planet. We might learn a thing or two. He came up to the fence and extended a handful of strawberries, for his gardening was as generous as it was enthusiastic. At the same time he told me of the burning pine woods about the Byfleet fleet golf-links. They say, said he, that there's another one of those blessed things fallen there. Number two. But one's enough, surely. This lot will cost the insurance people a pretty penny before everything's settled. He laughed with an air of the greatest good humour as he said this. The woods, he said, were still burning, and pointed out a haze of smoke to me. They will be hot underfoot for days, on account of the thick soil of pine needles and turf, he said, and then grew serious over. Poor Ogilvy. After breakfast, instead of working, I decided to walk down towards the common. Under the railway bridge I found a group of soldiers. Sappers, I think. Men in small round caps. Dirty red jackets, unbuttoned. And showing their blue shirts, dark trousers and boots coming to the calf. They told me no one was allowed over the canal and, looking along the road towards the bridge, I saw one of the cardigan men standing sentinel there. I talked with these soldiers for a time. I told them of my sight of the Martians on the previous evening. None of them had seen the Martians, and they had but the vaguest idea of them, so that they piled me with questions. They said that they did not know who had authorised the movements of the troops. Their idea was that a dispute had arisen at the horse guards, The ordinary sapper is a great deal better educated than the common soldier, and they discussed the peculiar conditions of the possible fight with some acuteness. I described the heat ray to them, and they began to argue among themselves. Crawl up under cover and rush them, I say, said one get ye," said another. "'What's cover against this here, eat? Sticks to your cook, yeah. What we got to do is go as near as ground'll let us, and then drive a trench.' "'Blow your trenches. You always want trenches. You ought to have been born a rabbit, snippy.' "'Ain't they got any necks, then?' said a third. Abruptly, a little, contemplative, dark man smoking a pipe. I repeated my description. Octopuses, said he. That's what I'll call them. Talk about fishers of men. Fighters of fish it is this time. It ain't no murder killing beasts like that, said the first speaker. "'Why not shell the darned things straight off and finish em? said the little dark man. "'You can't tell what they might do.' "'Where's your shells?' said the first speaker. "'There ain't no time. Do it in a rush, that's my tip, and do it at once.' So they discussed it. After a while I left them and went on to the railway station to get as many morning papers as I could. But I will not weary the reader with the description of that long morning and of the longer afternoon. I did not succeed in getting a glimpse of the common for even Horsall and Choban Church Towers were in the hands of military authorities. The soldiers I addressed didn't know anything. The officers were mysterious as well as busy. I found people in the town quite secure again in the presence of the military and I heard for the first time from Marshall, the tobacconist, that his son was among the dead on the common. The soldiers had made the people on the outskirts of Horsall lock up and leave their houses. I got back to lunch about two, very tired for, as I have said, the day was extremely hot and dull and in order to refresh myself, I took a cold bath in the afternoon. About half past four I went up to the railway station to get an evening paper, for the morning papers had contained only a very inaccurate description of the killing of Stent, Henderson, the Gilvey and others. But there was little I didn't know. The Martians did not show an inch of themselves. They seemed busy in their pit, and there was a sound of hammering and an almost continuous streamer of smoke. Apparently they were busy getting ready for a struggle. Fresh attempts have been made to signal, without success, was the stereotyped formula of the papers. A sapper told me it was done by a man in a ditch with a flag on a long pole. The Martians took as much notice of such advances as we should of the lowing of a cow. I must confess the sight of all this armament, all this preparation, greatly excited me. My imagination became belligerent and defeated the invaders in a dozen striking ways. Something of my schoolboy dreams of battle and heroism came back. It hardly seemed a fair fight to me at that time.
1: They seemed very helpless in that pit of theirs. About three o'clock
0: there began the thud of a gun at measured intervals from Chertsey or Alderston. I learned that the smouldering pine wood in which the second cylinder had fallen was being shelled in the hope of destroying that object before it opened. It was only about five however that a field gun reached Chobham for use against the first body of Martians. About six in the evening as I sat at tea with my wife in the summer house, talking vigorously about the battle that was lowering upon us, I heard a muffled detonation from the common, and immediately after a gust of firing. Close on the heels of that came a violent rattling crash, quite close to us that shook the ground and, starting out upon the lawn, I saw the tops of trees about the Oriental College burst into smoky red flame and the tower of the little church beside it slid down into ruin. The pinnacle of the mosque had vanished. And the roof line of the college itself looked as if a hundred ton gun had been at work upon it. One of our chimneys cracked as if a shot had hit it, flew, and a piece of it came clattering down the tiles and made a heap of broken red fragments upon the flower bed by my study window. I and my wife stood amazed. Then I realised that the crest of Maybury Hill must be within range of the Martians' heat ray now that the college was cleared out of the way. At that I gripped my wife's arm and without ceremony ran her out into the road. Then I fetched out the servant, telling her I would go upstairs myself for the box she was clamouring for. I can't possibly stay here, I said, and as I spoke the firing reopened for a moment upon the common. But where are we to go, said my wife in terror. I thought perplexed. Then I remembered her cousins in Leatherhead. Leatherhead, I shouted above the sudden noise. She looked away from me downhill. The people were coming out
1: of their houses, astonished. How are we to get to Leatherhead? she said.
0: Down the hill I saw a bevy of Hussar riders under the railway bridge. Three galloped through the open gates of the Oriental College. Two others dismounted and began running from house to house. The sun, shining through the smoke that drove up, From the top of the trees seemed blood-red and threw an
1: unfamiliar lurid light upon everything. Stop here, said I. You
0: are safe here. And I started off at once for the spotted dog, for I knew the landlord had a horse and dog cart. I ran, for I perceived that in a moment everyone upon this side of the hill would be moving. I found him in his bar, quite unaware of what was going on behind his house. A man stood with his back to me talking to him. I must have a pound, said the landlord and I've no one to drive it. I'll give you two, said I, over the stranger's shoulder. What for? And I'll bring it back by midnight, I said. Lord, said the landlord, what's the hurry? I'm selling my bit
1: of a pig. Two pounds and you bring it back? What's going on now? I
0: explained hastily that I had to leave my home and so secured the dog cart. At the time it did not seem to me nearly so urgent that the landlord should leave his. I took care to have the cart there and then, drove it off down the road. And, leaving it in charge of my wife and servant, rushed into my house and packed a few valuables, such plate as we had, and so forth. The beech trees below the house were burning while I did this, and palings up the road glowed red. While I was occupied in this way, one of the dismounted hussars came running up. He was going from house to house, warning people to leave. He was going on as I came out of my front door, lugging my treasures, done up in a
1: tablecloth. I shouted after him. What news? He turned, stared,
0: bawled something about, crawling out in a thing like a dish cover, and ran on to the gate of the house at the crest. A sudden whirl of black smoke driving across the road hit him for a moment. I ran to my neighbour's door and rapped it to satisfy myself of what I already knew, that his wife had gone to London with him and had locked up their house. I went in again, according to my promise, to get my servant's box, lugged it out, clapped it beside her on the tail of the dog cart and then caught the reins and jumped up into the driver's seat beside my wife. In another moment we were clear of the smoke and noise and spanking down the opposite slope of Maybury Hill towards Old Woking. In front, was a quiet sunny landscape a wheat field ahead on either side of the road and the Maybury Inn with its swinging sign I saw the doctor's cart ahead of me at the bottom of the hill I turned my head to look at the hillside I was leaving thick streamers of black Smoke shot with threads of red fire were driving up into the still air and throwing dark shadows upon the green tree tops eastward. The smoke already extended far away to the east and west to the Byfleet pine woods eastward and to woking on the west. The road was dotted with people running towards us, and very faint now, but very distinct through the hot, quiet air. One heard the whirr of a machine gun that was presently stilled, and an intermittent cracking of rifles. Apparently the Martians were setting fire to everything within range of their heat ray. I am not an expert driver, and I had immediately to turn my attention to the horse. When I looked back again, the second hill had hidden the black smoke. I clashed the horse with the whip and gave him a loose rein until Woking and Send lay between us and that quivering tumult. I overtook
1: and passed the doctor between Woking and Send. Chapter 10 In the Storm
0: Leatherhead is about twelve miles from Maybury Hill. The scent of hay was in the air through the lush meadows beyond Pierford, and the hedges on either side were sweet and gay with multitudes of dog roses. The heavy firing that had broken out while we were driving down Maybury Hill ceased as abruptly as it began, leaving the evening very peaceful and still. We got to Leatherhead without misadventure about nine o'clock, and the horse had an hour's rest while we took supper with my cousins, and the horse had an hour's rest while I took supper with my cousins and commended my wife to their care. My wife was curiously silent throughout the drive and seemed oppressed with forebodings of evil. I talked to her reassuringly, pointing out that the Martians were tied to the pit by sheer heaviness, and at the utmost could but crawl a little distance out of it. But she answered only in monosyllables. Had it not been for my promise to the innkeeper, She would, I think, have urged me to stay in Leatherhead that night. Would that I had. Her face, I remember, was very white as we parted. For my own part, I had been feverishly excited all day. Something very like the war fever that occasionally runs through a civilised community had got into my blood. And in my heart I was not so very sorry that I had to return to Maybury that night. I was even afraid that that last fusillade I had heard might mean the extermination of our invaders from Mars. I can best express my state of mind by saying that I wanted to be
1: in at the death. It was nearly eleven when I started to return.
0: The night was unexpectedly dark to me, walking out of the lighted passage of my cousin's house. It seemed indeed black, and it was as hot and close as the day. Overhead the clouds were driving fast, albeit not a breath stirred the shrubs about us. My cousin's man lit both lamps. Happily, I knew the road intimately. My wife stood in the light of the doorway and watched me until I jumped up into the dog cart. Then, abruptly, she turned and went in, leaving my cousin's side by side, wishing me good hap. I was a little depressed at first with the contagion of my wife's fear, but very soon my thoughts reverted to the Martians. At that time I was absolutely in the dark as to the course of the evening's fighting. I did not know even the circumstances, that precipitated the conflict. As I came through Ockham, for that was the way I returned, and not through send and old woking, I saw along the western horizon a blood-red glow, which as I drew nearer crept slowly up the sky. The driving clouds of the gathering thunderstorm mingled there with masses of black and red smoke. Ripley Street was deserted, and except for a lighted window or so, the village showed not a sign of life, but I narrowly escaped an accident at the corner of the road of Pierford, where a knot of people stood with their backs to me. They said nothing to me as I passed. I do not know what they knew of the things happening beyond the hill, nor do I know if the silent houses I passed on my way were sleeping securely or deserted and empty, or harassed and watching against the terror of the night. From Ripley until I came through Pierford I was in the valley of the way, and the red glare was hidden from me. As I ascended the little hill beyond Pierford Church, the glare came into view again. And the trees about me shivered with the first imitation of the storm that was upon me. Then I heard midnight pealing out from Pierford Church behind me, and then came the silhouette of Maybury Hill, with its tree tops and roofs black and sharp against the red. Even as I beheld this, a lurid green glare lit the road about me and showed the distant woods towards Alderston, I felt a tug at the reins. I saw that the driving clouds had been pierced, as it were, by a thread of green fire. Suddenly lighting their confusion, and falling into the field to my left. It was the third falling star. Close on its apparition, and blindingly violet by contrast, danced out the first lightning of the gathering storm, and the thunder burst like a rocket overhead. The horse took the bit between his teeth and bolted. A moderate incline runs towards the foot of Maybury Hill, and down this we clattered. Once the lightning had begun, it went on in as rapid a succession of flashes as I had ever seen. The thunder claps treading one on the heels of another and with a strange crackling accompaniment sounded more like the working of a gigantic electric machine than the usual detonating reverberations. The flickering light was blinding and confusing and a thin hail smote gustily at my face as I drove down the slope. At first I regarded little but the road before me and then abruptly my attention was arrested by something that was moving rapidly down the opposite slope of Maybury Hill. At first I took it for the wet roof of a house, but one flash following another showed it to be in swift rolling movement. It was an elusive vision, a moment of bewildering darkness, and then, in a flash like daylight, the red masses of the orphanage near the crest of the hill The green tops of the pine trees and this problematical object came out clear and sharp
1: and bright. And this thing I saw, how can I describe it? A
0: monstrous tripod, higher than many houses, striding over the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career. A walking engine of glittering metal, striding now across the heather, articulate ropes of steel dangling from it, and the clattering tumult of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. A flash, and it came out vividly, healing over one way with two feet in the air, to vanish and reappear almost instantly as it seemed with the next flash and a hundred yards nearer. Can you imagine a milking stall tilted and bowled violently along the ground? That was the impression those instant flashes gave. But instead of a milking stall, imagine a great body of machinery on a tripod stand. Then suddenly the trees in the pinewood ahead of me were parted, as brittle reeds are parted by a man thrusting through them. They were snapped off and driven headlong, and a second huge tripod appeared, rushing as it seemed, headlong towards me. And I was galloping hard to meet it. At the sight of the second monster my nerve went all together, not stopping to look again. I wrenched the horse's head hard round to the right, and in another moment the dog cart had heeled over upon the horse. The shaft smashed noisily, and I was flung sideways and fell heavily into a shallow pool of water.
1: I crawled out almost immediately. "'and crouched my feet still in
0: the water under a clump of furs. "'The horse lay motionless, his neck was broken, poor brute, "'and by the lightning flashes I saw the black bulk of the overturned dog cart "'and the silhouette of the wheel still spinning slowly.' In another moment, the colossal mechanism went striding by me and passed uphill towards Pierford. Seen nearer, the thing was incredibly strange, for it was no mere insensate machine driving on its way. Machine it was, with a ringing metallic pace. And long, flexible, glittering tentacles, one of which gripped a young pine tree, swinging and rattling about its body. It picked its road as it went striding along, and the brazen hood that surmounted it moved to and fro with the inevitable suggestion of a head looking about. Behind the main body was a huge mass of white metal, like a gigantic fisherman's basket, and puffs of green smoke squirted out from the joints of the limbs as the monster swept by me, and in an instant it was gone. So much I saw then, all vaguely for the flickering of the lightning, in blinding highlights and dense black shadows. As it passed, it set up an
1: exultant, deafening howl that drowned the thunder. Aloo, aloo, and in
0: another minute it was with its companion, half a mile away, stooping over something in the field. I have no doubt this thing in the field was the third of the ten cylinders they had fired at us from Mars. For some minutes, I lay there in the rain and darkness watching. By the intermittent light, these monstrous beings of metal moving about in the distance over the hedge tops. A thin hail was now beginning, and as it came and went their figures grew misty and then flashed into clearness again. Now and then came a gap in the lightning, and the night swallowed them up. I was soaked with hail above and puddle water below. It was some time before my blank astonishment would let me struggle up the bank to a drier position or think at all of my imminent peril. Not far from me was a little one-roomed squatter hut of wood, surrounded by a patch. Of potato garden. I struggled to my feet at last, and, crouching and making use of every chance of cover, I made a run for this. I hammered at the door, but I could not make the people hear if there were any people inside, and after a time I desisted. And availing myself of a ditch for the greater part of the way, succeeded in crawling unobserved by these monstrous machines into the pine woods towards Maybury. Under cover of this, I pushed on, wet and shivering now, towards my own house. I walked among the trees trying to find the footpath. It was very dark indeed in the wood, for the lightning was now becoming infrequent, and the hail, which was pouring down in a torrent, fell in columns through the gaps in the heavy foliage. If I had fully realised the meaning of all the things I had seen, I should have immediately worked my way round through Byfleet to Street Cobham, and so gone back to rejoin my wife at Leatherhead. But that night the strangeness of things about me and my physical wretchedness prevented me for I was bruised, weary,
1: wet to the skin, deafened and blinded by the storm. I had a vague
0: idea of going on to my own house, and that was as much motive as I had. I staggered through the trees, fell into a ditch and bruised my knees against a plank and finally splashed out into the lane that ran down from the college arms. I say splashed, for the storm water was sweeping the sand down the hill in muddy torrents. There in the darkness a man blundered into me and sent me reeling back. He gave a cry of terror sprang sideways and rushed on before I could gather my wits sufficiently to speak to him. So heavy was the stress of the storm, just at this place that I had the hardest task to win my way up the hill. I went close up to the fence on the left and worked my way along its palings. Near the top I stumbled upon something soft and, by a flash of lightning, saw between my feet a heap of black broadcloth and a pair of boots. Before I could distinguish clearly how the man lay, the flickering of light had passed. I stood over him waiting for the next flash. When it came, I saw that he was a sturdy man, cheaply but not shabbily dressed. His head was bent under his body, and he lay crumpled up close to the fence, as though he had been flung violently against it. Overcoming the repugnance natural to one who had never before touched a dead body,
1: I stooped and turned him over to feel his heart. He was quite dead. Apparently his neck had been broken. The lightning
0: flashed for a third time and his face leaped upon me. I sprang to my feet. It was the landlord of the spotted dog whose conveyance I had taken. I stepped over him gingerly and pushed on up the hill. I made my way by the police station and the college arms towards my own house. Nothing was burning on the hillside though from the common there still came a red glare and a rolling tumult of ruddy smoke beating up against the drenching hail. So far as I could see by the flashes, the houses about me were almost uninjured. By the college arms a dark heap lay in the road, down the road towards Maybury Bridge there were voices and the sound of feet, but I had not the courage to shout or to go to them. I let myself in with my latch key, closed, locked and bolted the door, staggered to the foot of the staircase and sat down. My imagination was full of those striding metallic monsters and of the dead body smashed against the fence. I crouched at the foot of the staircase with my back to the
1: wall, shivering violently.